Right, today we're going to carry on in our series in the book of Philippians. It is um, an extraordinary letter and one which has just made a big impact on my life over the years. Some of the amazing, amazing passages in here of Paul's uh, love for Jesus and his devotion to Christ. And I just feel so much expectation of how God's going to work in our lives as we work through this letter. But we're just going to begin by reading in Philippians 1. We'll read the, the uh, Thanksgiving and prayer again uh, from verse 3 to 11. But we're going to focus this time on the last few verses from verse 9, where he begins to describe what it is that he prays for when he prays for the Philippian church. And uh, let's trust that God's going to speak to us as we do this. Philippians 1, 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Are you a person who feels something of, ever feels a kind of, desperation or frustration with yourself. The promise of the word is that Jesus is continuing to work in your life and he will transform you into what he intends for you to be. Every Christian is a work in progress. That's why we don't want people to come in here with shame and feeling that you don't belong. We want you to feel that everyone's in the same boat as you. Jesus is working on you. He's changing you. And the promise is he'll finish that work. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And now he turns to what he's praying for for them. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is it then that Paul's praying for for them? I think the essence of it is, that, is this, this word love. He's praying for love that abounds. And that is the central aspect of this prayer. It's the, the basic direction, the thrust of what he prays for. And of course, it is one of the most important things that we can be thinking about as Christians. It's so vital for us. But I think in this day and age, it doesn't seem to be particularly the case that, that love is something that the church has any kind of um, monopoly on. And in fact, many people will look at the church and think that the church doesn't necessarily embody love. That love isn't the first word they think of when they think of Christians or think of the church. This is something that Jeremy sought to speak into the other night. And yet, it seems to me that the the great emphasis of the New Testament and of the Bible as a whole is that if you were to think about one thing that distinguishes, that marks out as different Christians and the church of Jesus Christ... One thing that they ought to be recognized by and characterized by and noticed because of is this aspect of love. This is what makes us unique in the world. The reason why I say that, 
take you to some familiar places just as we set the frame for what we're going to be speaking about. The reason why I say that is because of passages like in Matthew 22, where Jesus is asked the question, well, what's the greatest of all God's commands? We know that God wants us to live righteous, godly lives, but what's the greatest of them all? And Matthew records how Jesus answers that the greatest of all the commands is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then he says, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul echoes this teaching in Romans 13. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So you ask, what does a godly life look like? And Paul says, as long as you're asking yourself, well, what is loving? Then you're obeying God. You're walking in obedience to God. And then he starts giving examples. He says, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not cover. And any other commandment are summed up. They're all captured by and summarized by this One word, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, this is familiar terrain to you. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, this is very familiar terrain to you. We know that this is what the Christian life is all about. But why then is Paul praying for it? I'm trying to underline for you that this is what makes us absolutely distinct. This is what I think is going on in Jesus' mind when he says in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now if he was to pick out some characteristic which is generally true everywhere in the world, like by this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you enjoy good coffee, or that you like going out to eat nice food. And there's nothing distinctive about that, is there? It doesn't work. The logic of it doesn't work. He's saying one thing that they ought to see in you that isn't true everywhere else we look in the world is that you have an extraordinarily love for one another that, is, that captures the attention, that causes people to sit up and take note, that makes them look at the church with something like envy, I think, with desire, with longing. This is why I'm trying to underline for you, this is something absolutely distinct and unique among God's people. In in 1 Corinthians 13, you know that passage that's always read at weddings, rightly or wrongly, we can debate that one, but uh, where he's talking about what love is. And of course, he's not really talking about romantic love there, but he's talking more generally about the agape love that belongs in the church. And one of the things, you know, that passage is love is patient and kind, doesn't envy or boast, it's not arrogant, and so on and so on. One thing that stands out in there is he says, love never ends. Everything else in the Christian life, in terms of the gifts and service of Jesus and faith and hope, all these things become redundant when we're face to face with Jesus for eternity. But one thing he says that never ends is love. It's so central. It's so unique. It's so critical to what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be part of the church. Now, I guess the question I'm trying to set up for you as we get into this prayer in Philippians 1 is this. How can we as Christians maintain or claim that love is something so unique among us? In a world where it doesn't seem to be the case. This seems to me a more important question than ever to answer in light of things that we've been seeing happening this week. We're living in a world of 
a good deal of rage and hatred, aren't we? We are faced by things that shock us, things we despise, and often it's put in the name of faith and of religion, isn't it? It's what religion does to the world. It brings division, it brings hatred. The one thing people are not doing is they're saying, well, how can we get answers from religion? I think we also have this problem of persuading people that the church is unique in light of the fact that the language of love seems to have been hijacked to a large degree by a kind of progressive liberal moral agenda in the last sort of 50 to 60, 70 years in the Western world. So the church is always put on the back foot being known for what it stands against rather than what it stands for. And the one thing people do not think when they think of Christians is of love. And yet we come back to what Paul says here in this prayer. It's my prayer, he says, that your love may abound more and more. Whatever we're doing here as a church plant, I think we can agree on this. Unless this is true of us, then we failed. Unless this is absolutely central to who we are, and what we're seeking to build here, then it's not something that brings Jesus glory. Remember how the prayer ends. It's to the glory and praise of God. When we set about seeking to build something in Jesus' name, something that is for him and for his glory, it has to be characterized by love above all things or else it's not something that glorifies him. So I want us to bring focus to this question. How can we make the case that love is something special in the church, that there is something unique about the love that we have among ourselves that is different, that is standout, and that ought to catch the attention of the world around us? I want to give you five answers to that that come out of this prayer. And the first is this, that the love of God in us is supernatural. I think that's absolutely bound up with the fact that Paul has to pray for this. He says he prays for it. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. In other words, that's to say this is the work of God in his people. It's always the work of God in his people when he brings us together from all the diverse backgrounds that we come from and brings us together in one heart and love and mind. Now you know this. You know it when you look at your own life. You cannot will yourself to grow in your love. That there are things you, you naturally dislike and things that cause you to pull back from people, whether it's your character traits or your fears, your anxieties, or your insecurities, or your sense of superiority. It's different in every heart, but the one thing you can all acknowledge is that you can't just will yourself to become a more loving person. And yet it's the experience of the Christian that they can look back on their life and they know that they've experienced a change of heart and that it's been a work of God in them. If this is not true of you, friend, then you need to ask yourself whether God has been working in your life at all, whether you've submitted your life to him. Because every one of us who owns Jesus and says, Jesus is Lord of my life and I have surrendered my life to him. I know that I am a follower of Christ. I'm a disciple of Christ. It's someone who can look at their own life and see that there has been a change in them with regard to what they love and how they love. A very central thing that changes in your heart. 
you look back on, on your past before you know you knew Jesus, and you, you think, I, I loved different things back then. It wasn't that I didn't have any love, but that my love had a different focus back then. You may have loved sin. You may have just loved good things in this world, but loved them to an inordinate degree, way beyond what the right kind of proportion in your life. But one thing is true of you, you love different things. And now you look at your own life and you say, that I feel that the love that I now have at work in my heart is not my personality. It's not just a natural thing that's, that's, that's happened in me. You can say that with absolute integrity and honesty because you think, I've changed and I have a love for people that I didn't have before and it has to be the work of God in me. I don't care where you come on the personality spectrums, whether it's Myers-Briggs or StrengthsFinder or whatever, the one thing you know is that when you've fulfilled those tests online, it has not come back with saying that you are a naturally loving person. That's just who you are by your nature. You just can't help putting others first. So all of us know that the love that we now have is a supernatural work of God in us. That's assumed in the very fact that Paul has to pray for it and that as he prays for it, he is seeing this grow in the Philippian church and in their own lives and hearts. So you look at your life and you say, I can start to see the ways in which I am now marked by love when I wasn't before. I sacrifice for people. I sacrifice for God in ways that I didn't before I knew him. That's a supernatural work of God. Why else would you sacrifice time and energy and do things that are costly to you because God's love has begun to work in your heart in a way that it hadn't before. You're aware of generosity. You want to give of yourself and of your time and of your resources to people. This is a work of God. I don't think anybody's born generous. You just need to spend 10 minutes with my children just to notice how it is not by nature to be generous. Little Isla, the younger one, is a terrorist when it comes to Seth and his toys. She watches him play with his toys, and then she steals them off him. He gets annoyed, and then he gets told off because it looks like he's the one being aggressive. It's her. It's sin in the heart. (laughs) She is absolutely dead set on getting her own selfish way. None of us are generous by nature, but God's love has begun to work in us. You think about the kindnesses that you show now. Of course, I'm not saying any of this to big you up. Far from it. I'm trying to say the very opposite. The fact that you now have a kindness at work in you, that you want to love people, serve them, put other people before yourself, is God. It's supernatural. We don't take credit for this. We can't take credit for this. This is not who we were by nature. Here's a second reason why I want to say this is something so unique in the church of God. That the love of God in us is, I struggle to know how to express this, but I want to put it like this, that it's kind of a basic, essential, elemental thing in our hearts. I think this comes over in how Paul prays for them. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now, it's crucial that you notice that he doesn't pray for a specific type of love. He doesn't say, I for a particular object to your love. He doesn't pray that your love for God might abound for each other more, or that your love for each other might abound more, or that your love for the world might abound more. Those are all expressions of love. You can hold them out there. But he's saying there's something more fundamental, more essential, more central to who you are as a person that needs to change, simply that your love may abound more and more, that you in your very essence, in the core of you, who you are, will change to become a more loving person. 
And I think this is what, where this steers us to, is to understand that this is something so central to what the church is in its very nature. The church is a loving organization. It's one of the things that defines what and who we are. Now, you can say certain things are true of a person or of an organization, but it doesn't necessarily define them. So, for example, it's true that Sian is my wife. But if every Sunday people go up to her and say, hi, hi, Andrew's wife, hi, pastor's wife, she's going to feel pretty frustrated because even though that's true of her, that isn't actually fundamental to her nature. She's Sian first and foremost. But what Paul's saying is that this isn't just a characteristic that's true of us out there, that this is actually central to who we are, that this needs to be core to what the church looks like and feels like and how it's being changed. It is loving from beginning to end. Now ask yourself, is that true of any other group that you're part of in the world? I think the love groups are characterized by love. You think about societies that you may be part of at university or the gym that you're a member of and these kinds of things. <laughs> that was a bit of a snort from Naomi. <laughs> it's like, what gym? <laughs> you might experience love in these places, but it's not love that binds you, is it? That's what I'm trying to say. So you don't go to the gym because it's, it's characterized by love. You go to the gym basically to love yourself more and, and be bit fitter, but then you might, as a byproduct, experience love in that place. I think this is true of every other group in the world. You say, well, what about friendship? Friendship is basically love. I say, well, yes, it is, but it's an exclusive kind of love, isn't it? It's love that has boundaries around it within that friendship or that friendship group. But the church doesn't have those kind of boundaries. This is why love is so central to what brings us together. It is not an exclusive love. It is love in its pure essence. Love is what we are. We are, in a sense, love. Now, why is that so important to, to emphasize? Because this difference, there's a difference between being loving and being defined by love. I think we can say of many other religions that they experience love. I think we can say of many other organizations and moves for cultural transformation, all these kinds of things, that love is a characteristic of what they are and what they do. But I think it can't be said of any other grouping on the planet that love is who they are except for the church of Jesus Christ. That might strike you as a little bit overconfident. I think it's true. Here's how one writer put it. He says, love is the most in the most comprehensive sense as the central element of the Christian life. And friends, the reason why I'm stressing this is because this is who God is. The God we worship, in distinction from the gods of other religions, is not, it's not, he's not just described as loving. It's not that there's a God who we can describe with all these words as just, righteous, and, and, uh, and uh, all, everything else, that powerful, and all-knowing, all these things, and also he's got some love. The Bible makes it more, describes love as being more central to who he is in his very nature. It's there in 1 John 4, when it says, In verse 8, that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Love is who he is. Which means that the church of Jesus Christ, which is being formed and fashioned in his image after the image of Jesus Christ, also experiences love at the very core of who we are. It's elemental, it's basic, it's essential. It is what the church is. Here's a third thing that comes out in this prayer. 
that the love of God is, is theological. Before you roll your eyes, let me try show you what I mean. It says here, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, whenever the word knowledge is used in the New Testament, it's nearly always describing knowledge of God. It's actually there a little bit later in the book of Philippians, the page in chapter 3. He says, I count, in verse 8, I, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now this in itself is obviously something unique in the flavor of Christian love. Because this, we don't separate out feelings and intellect. We don't separate out emotions and the growth of the mind and of, of your understanding. These two things are absolutely intimately bound together in Christian understanding. If all we had were emotions, if all we had was a feeling, then you might feel that you're, as you come to church, it's like walking into a, a blanket of a cushion of affection and delight. But you never really be growing in your character or transforming in who you are as a person. But the love of God in the New Testament is something which is accompanied by and fueled by and, and, and formed by the growth of the knowledge of God. What, what's the connection here? How do knowledge and love relate? Well, I think it's this, that the knowledge of God, as you grow in your discipleship to him, it modifies, it controls, it informs how you love. Now, of course, this means that there is both a negative and a positive dimension to the way Christians love. That negatively... As we grow in knowledge of God, it means that there are things that we do not love. We hate the enemy and all his works. I think this is one of the hardest things to explain about what Christian love is and how Christian love works to people who are outside the church. Because they look at us and think, didn't the Beatles get it right? Like, all you need is love peace man, and can't we just accept everything the way it is? Of course, the Christian heart is a heart that as we grow in knowledge of Jesus Christ, our hearts also revolt against certain things. We hate what happened in London this week. A violation of, of justice and of God's righteousness. And we can hate it because our minds are being formed in the likeness of God himself. We hate it because of the love of God. Love and hate are not in opposition the more you love in the way God loves, there are certain things that you will and must hate. We hate the enemy in all his works. We also hate sin. We hate the sin in our own hearts. He prays that your love may abound with all knowledge and all discernment. There are things that we cannot love. But it also means this, put it positively, that you start to love the things that God himself loves as you grow in your understanding of who God is. Perhaps this is most true in the area of loving the church and loving the world. Think about those in turn. You have no natural reason to feel affection towards the church. And a lot of people think that they can be Christians without loving or delighting in or being part of a church. They think it's, it's my religion and I'll do it in a very personal way. And so they, 
they're ambivalent towards church. Sometimes they go, sometimes they don't. But there's no real heart connection or core reason to be bound in love to, your, to a church body. But of course, as we grow in the mind of Christ, you know, as one preacher put it, you can't love Jesus and hate his wife. You realize that you have to start loving the things that Jesus loves. And if Jesus has delight in his church, so much so that he died for her, you start to love the church with the same passion. Not because she's perfect. Not because she always meets your expectations. Often in spite of her failings. You may well have right grumblings towards the church. You come to church and you think, man, people are not friendly to me. Or I feel excluded or I feel alone. Do you know that the more you walk in obedience to Jesus, to love her like he loves her, to love the church like Jesus does, you will begin to feel an overwhelming, throbbing desire to see the church flourish in the world. And only then do you then experience the rebound effect of being accepted and feeling the love of the church for you. We all have to come in here with that mindset. Think also about the world and what it means to live on mission for Jesus. Once upon a time, before you knew Jesus, you had all kinds of missions that characterize your life. For many, it may be things, even if we didn't admit it, things as carnal as just living for success, ambition, money, all the rest of it. But when you come to know Jesus and your love begins to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, one of the things that that fundamentally changes in your heart is that you feel a passion for the world to come to know Jesus also. Your loves begin to be reoriented. This is what I mean when I say that the love we have is theological because we start to think with the mind of God. And what does God see when he sees the world? He sees the world that he so loved that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. Now this is something absolutely unique to the church of Jesus Christ. No one else on this earth lives with such an outward-looking, passionate desire to bless and help and save the world as the church does. People have all kinds of missions, but they're so often so self-serving. But this is why you find the church working in the darkest, most difficult corners of planet Earth. Fearlessly, because they want to love with the love that Jesus has. Friends, this is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That's why in Romans 12, when Paul's talking about our growth in discipleship, He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, live your life of worship to Jesus, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then he says, do not be conformed to this world. The things you've got to hate, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's things that you now need to love by testing that you might discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. The love of God in your life only becomes a controlling, transforming thing in you the more you grow in knowledge of God. That's why no Christian should ever be satisfied with just a basic ABC knowledge of the Christian faith, with the milk, as it's described in the New Testament. The minute you get saved, your whole purpose in life ought to be to know God better, his ways, his will, and to experience the transforming effect of that on your emotions and on your emotional life, your interior life. 
things that you begin to turn your back on and things you begin to embrace as God changes your heart. Is this this true of you, friends? He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment. Here's the fourth thing. That the love of God at work in us is distinctive, is unique, is different from the love you'll find anywhere else in the world because it is absolutely transformational. How does he put it here? He says, he prays that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what's excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, here's the difference, what I'm trying to set up for you here. There is behavior that's loving, which is, which is superficial. And I think about, you know, I don't know if any of you ever had owned pets, particularly dogs. Dogs can be trained to behave in such a way that seems loving. But I highly doubt whether dogs really love, at least in the way we understand love, right? Some of you have had dogs like, no, my dog loves me. (laughs) I know, I see it in his eyes. The point is that a, a dog's behavior can be shaped and fashioned and conformed to what you want them to behave like. But it's superficial. It's not a change of heart. Now, I think this is true to a huge extent of the culture we live in. We live in the Western world, thank God, where we experience so much of the justice and, and, and righteousness that is a hangover of biblical teaching that's been seeped into our culture over centuries. So many of the things that we celebrate and love about, about Britain, about its laws, about its notion of justice and its notion of the value of human beings is because of what God did in our nation in centuries gone by. Wonderful, great. But here's the problem. So much of that is just a veneer. You scratch beneath the surface and you realize that there's a little bit of a stinking cesspit of horrible things that are going on in people's hearts all the time, isn't there? It seems to me that I've never known a time like the last couple of years when we've just learned about so many scandals that have been covered up and hidden. Beneath that veneer of politeness, which we treasure so much as British people, beneath that veneer of decency and of doing the right thing, all kinds of desires run amok, selfish ugly desires. There is businessmen who pillage the companies and the company pensions or cover-ups with pedophilia that's been in some of the most precious organizations that we have in this country. You think, well, what, what is this? It's the human heart that beneath the veneer of a right way of behaving, there is so often all this ugliness But when Paul says here that I pray that your love may abound, he doesn't just want nice behavior in the church. He doesn't just want you guys to sort of become enculturated, that you learn the right language and walk in and know how to shake hands in the right way and to serve tea in the right way and and enjoy cake together. He's talking about a change of heart that is so fundamental that you can be characterized by being pure and blameless. I think this means that when you're living a loving life, you, you're living a selfless life. That the selfishness that once ruled you is being put to death 
by Jesus Christ as you grow in the love that he has? Is it true of you? You look at your life and you think, am I, am I living basically for myself or is there a change, a shift in my heart that's taking place? That I desire what Christ desires, that there is a pure and blameless love going on in my heart. Here's the last thing. The love of God is, is a responsive love. He says at the end here that as he prays that their love may abound more and more, he prays that they'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In other words, that the life that you live on account of God's work in your life. The fruit that comes out of that life, which always means a transformation in terms of your actions. It's one of the marks of what a Christian is in the New Testament, is somebody who bears fruit. That suddenly you do things you never did before and you do them for Jesus' glory. And that fruit ought to be growing as you grow older in your years. It's not just a case of you get saved and you're radical for two or three years and then you chill out and settle into suburban life and then and take your foot off the throttle. No, on the contrary, a Christian is somebody who, over the years, the fruit in their life seems to abound more and more so that the branches seem to be heavy laden with the work of God in and through them. But here's the crucial thing, friends. This right, fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That means that this is the family dynamic that Jesus is setting in us. It's responsive in reaction to his love for us, not the other way around. Now you think about how family dynamics work. Whenever you go into a family, you begin to pick up what the dynamic is in that home, especially if they've got a bunch of kids all expressing that family dynamic. Some families are are marked by being angry. Where does that come from? Well, it actually comes from how the parents set the dynamic in the home, doesn't it? Some families are marked by being very studious. They all work hard, they focus, they get the work done, and they excel. Where does that dynamic come from? Well, it comes from the parents. The parents instill it. They set the tone in the family. Some of them are fun. Some of them are less fun. Some of them are chaotic. Some of them are lazy. You probably all know what your family dynamic is like and how it's perceived by others. But here's what I'm trying to help you to see. The family dynamic that is true in the church is that the church is love. Not because we set that as the controlling dynamic of what, the way we relate to each other, but because this is the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The only reason, in other words, that we love is because we have experienced his love for us. Paul puts this so clearly in the book of Romans. He says in Romans 5, he says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But... God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. God was laying out the red carpet for you when you were a vile sinner and embracing you into a loving family. That is why you now are living a changed life. It comes over in 1 John 4 as well. It's said about John, by the way. You know John, Jesus' disciple. He's one of his closest friends. The guy who wrote John's gospel. When he was an old man, he's the only one of the apostles who lived beyond you know, didn't get put to death by martyrdom or suicide in the case of Judas. He's the only one who died a natural death. And so he grew to be an old man. And when he was old, he lived in Ephesus. We learn about in some of the church history books. Chloe, you're not going too far, are you? Because we're about to. Okay. <laughs> Bad timing. Bad timing. So I just have to keep going for a little bit longer, right? All right. (laughs) So I just have to confabulate a bit and just chat a little bit longer than I intended. We're going to have to edit this in the recording later, aren't we? (laughs) Chloe has gone to the toilet. Great. John. I was talking to you about John, wasn't I? Um... Don't we love Chloe? Just love her. In Ephesus, we learn from some of the church fathers, and they, or, I'm not sure exactly where, but I've heard this told many times, that John himself, and he's an old man living in Ephesus, used to be carried or wheeled into church. And the one thing he kept saying to the Ephesian Christians was love one another. It was like when everything else is, you know, all his ability is stripped away, Maybe his, ability, his energy to preach or whatever, he didn't have that anymore. But he wanted them to remember one thing. Love one another. And when you read a book like 1 John, it comes across very forcefully because all the way through this letter, to what, uh, he writes, love one another, love one another, love one another. But for him, this was undergirded by his his experience of the love of God in his own heart and the love that's been lavished on God's people. That's what I'm trying to help you understand here. That the love we have in the church is because we've experienced the love of God. And if you find a church where there isn't love, those people have not experienced the love of God. Is it even a church is a question you can ask. You go to a place where people are cold and, and, and formal, where there is no affection between the people. Have they experienced the love of God first and foremost is the question you want to ask. Are they even part of his family? Because where the love of God begins to flood into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, it shapes the way we feel towards one another and towards the world. And of course towards him. It's the family dynamic. A real church is a church where love is the thing that strikes you first and the thing you remember when you walk out the door. And so in, John, in his letter, 1 John, We already read that verse where he says, God is love. But he goes on a couple of verses later in 1 John 4.10 and says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. In other words, he set the dynamic here. How? And sent his son to be the propitiation or the sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love. His love, his love is perfected in us. 
This is the love of God. This is why it's a responsive love. So let me just talk to you first, Christians, as we close. Is this the controlling dynamic and the central focus in your life? Does it control how you worship when you come to worship? Do you think, I want to worship because I love God, first and foremost. Not because I enjoy the music. Not because, you know, I, I'm putting on a show for other people. I hope not. But because there is love in my heart towards Him. Is it how you go about friendship? About how you go about service? About how you go about giving? How you go about doing mission in the world? This is why Paul's praying. He's saying, I pray that your love may abound more and more. Because this has to be the one thing that runs through everything that we do. But also, let me talk to you if you're not a Christian. Do you say, when you see and experience the love of God in the church, or hear me talking about it, do you say to yourself, I want this in my life? I'm conscious of the need to experience such love. Firstly, God's love poured out into your heart. That's what it means to become a Christian. You begin to taste a love you've never tasted before, and it makes you feel transformed from the inside out. Do you feel that that's something you need? Because it would change your life if you were to open your heart to that. Are you aware also that you want your life to change, that you've been living for yourself and selfishness has been probably the characteristic word of how you've lived your life up to this point? Friend, that will continue unless God gets a hold of you. I don't care how hard you try to live a life towards others, there will always be that selfish root. The only way that can be uprooted is in response to the God of love who lavishes you with his love through Jesus dying on the cross for you. If you want to pray with me about that, I would love to pray with you. If you just want to ask questions, I would love to sit and talk with you about that. Please just come and grab me. I'll be at the front at the end. We want to make every opportunity for you to understand this better and to experience it for yourself.